0: Amen. Now I'm so glad you guys are here with us this morning. I want to ask you a question as we get started to think back to, uh, have you ever had an experience where you met a person or maybe a group of people or you stepped into a situation and you immediately thought, man, these people, this person, this is too good to be true. I've, I've finally found it. The perfect person. You know, the perfect group of people. You meet somebody or a group and they're all so nice. They're all so pretty. You know, they're so generous in some way. Maybe that's how you felt about your spouse when you first met them. Maybe that's how you still feel about your spouse. If so, that will fade. Um, I mean, they will be perfect, but beautifully perfect, right? Brokenly perfect. It's like all of that. It kind of works its way out. I remember an experience like this back in, uh, well, a long time ago. I don't even remember the year. It's long, so long ago. I was thinking about going to uh, grad school. And I was weighing a couple different options about where I might want to do that, and one of the places that had accepted me was the University of Richmond in Richmond, Virginia. And I had never been there before. I'd never been to the state of Virginia before, and we were really on the east coast at that time. And I thought, you know, before I make a final decision, I need to go see this place for myself. And so I bought a plane ticket, rented a car, went by myself, and, uh, and drove. I remember driving onto the campus of the University of Richmond And if some of you have been there, maybe your experience was the same way. But I literally felt like, like as soon as I crossed into the campus, that I had stepped into like an Abercrombie catalog. Like everything was absolutely perfect. You know, like everybody was perfect. The weather was perfect. The grass was green. The trees were green. Everything was like, I felt to some extent like I don't belong here. You know, like I'm going to mess up the perfection that they have. And um, you've probably had a situation like that, where you meet somebody, and you're like, is there anything wrong with this person? And then all of a sudden, one day you see something, you hear them say something, and you're like, ah, yes, a flaw, you know? And, and in that moment, it's almost like a relief, because you're like, I don't have to be perfect, they're not perfect. And uh, as we've been reading through the book of Acts, if you're joining us for the first time, we started in Acts chapter 1, verse 1, and we've been reading for several weeks now, kind of through the book of Acts, and studying it, and reading it. And it tells the story, of the early church, the first Christians, and to be honest with you, for about four chapters now, uh, everything's gone pretty smoothly, at least from the side of the believers, from those who have kind of found faith, salvation in Jesus, all the kind of the new converts, the new additions to the church. And so, you know, they're, they're generous with one another. We see that in, in, in Acts 4, uh, 2, at the very end of Acts 2, they're, they're sharing everything together. They're spending all their time together, meals in one another's homes. No one has any kind of needs. Uh, we see Peter and John in Acts 3, heal somebody, and then they face the firing squad of the Sanhedrin, and they have this amazingly beautiful and perfect response. You're like, these guys are perfect, you know, in every way. And I say that because today we're finally gonna to get to a story in which it reveals that not everything was in fact perfect. That there are flaws within the people that make up the church. And of course, if you've read any of Paul's letter to the churches in the New Testament, you know that he's addressing a lot of things that are kind of bubbling up, sins underneath the surface, and just the ways that they're not getting along and not really living out what they've been called to in many ways. But this is the first time in the book of Acts that we really start to see some of that bubble up. And, and so it might be a relief to you uh, Uh, But it's also quite a doozy of a story. In fact, I was tempted to just skip this part and just go to the next part uh, because this particular passage really asks more questions that I feel like I have answers to provide. And yet I still think it's worth studying and looking at. And I think there's a lot that we can learn from it. And so we're going to dive into it today. This is the end of the chapter four into the beginning of chapter five in Acts. And uh, if you remember last week, the last two weeks, Peter and John, after healing somebody, faced the firing squad of the Sanhedrin. They gave their response. We can't stop speaking about the things that we're experiencing. And then they go back to their own people. And last week, we looked like when they got back to the gathering of the people, They prayed for boldness, that in the face of whatever was going to happen, that they would be bold in their confidence and bold in speaking the truth. And today we see really a beautiful kind of uh, conclusion to that chapter. And then we get into some other things. So starting in verse 32 of chapter 4. We see that after praying together and after being filled with the Spirit and being bold, it says, The entire group of those who believed were of one heart and mind, and no one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but instead they held everything in common. With great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was on all of them, for there was not a needy person among them, because all those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the proceeds of what was sold, and laid them at the apostles' feet. This was then distributed to each person as any had need. So we have this beautiful picture of what the, the gathering was like, almost like euphoric, right? Everything is perfect, ideal in a way. And we even have an example of a man, an individual in that time, Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus by birth, the one that the apostles called Barnabas, which is translated son of encouragement, sold a field he owned, brought the money, and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias, here's where it starts to go south, with his wife, Sapphira, sold a piece of property. However, he kept back part of the proceeds with his wife's knowledge and brought a portion of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Ananias, Peter asked, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the proceeds of the land? Wasn't it yours while you possessed it? And after it was sold, wasn't it at your disposal? Why is it that you planned this thing in your heart? You have not lied to people, but to God. And when he heard these words, Ananias dropped dead, and a great fear came on all who heard. The young men got up, they wrapped his body, carried him out, and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Tell me, Peter asked her, did you sell the land for this price? Yes, she said, for that price. And I remember reading this story for the first time. I'm like, oh no, this is not going to go well. Then Peter said to her, and this is like so crazy, Why did you agree to test the Spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Instantly, she dropped dead at his feet. And when the young men came in, they found her dead, carried her out, and buried her beside her husband. And then great fear came on the whole church and on all who heard these things. Acts 4, 32 through five eleven. Now, with this story, obviously there will be some questions that we have. And, and there's really kind of three pieces. And so I want to talk about a few of the observations that I've made before we really get into what we might do with a passage like this. After we've wrestled with it, after we've come to grips with the fact that we're probably not super comfortable with everything that happened or how it happened or why it happened. I just want to introduce uh, the rest of the message by saying this. Uh, Luke, who wrote Acts, obviously wrote the Gospel of Luke as well, and we've talked about this a little bit in weeks prior. Luke was really a a fact finder and a truth teller in the sense of, of pure journalism, okay? He wanted to know what happened, find what happened, experience what happened, and just record it. Just the facts, kind of for everybody to read at that time and for us to read, obviously, a few thousand years later. What Luke did not do, typically, was dive into the why or the how of things were happening. He would tell us what happened, but very rarely does Luke get into the motives or the reasons behind the things that are happening, which leaves us with stories like today with a lot of questions, and most of those questions are why and how but I'll be perfectly honest, the story doesn't tell us why or how. And so rather than me just kind of giving you my best guess, which we'll do a little bit of, I'm just going to tell you that i never feel comfortable giving you something that I don't think the biblical text actually involves or actually includes. All right. So at some, to some extent, you will leave today with some questions unanswered. You will hear me say, I don't know. And I'm perfectly comfortable with that you might not be, And believe me, there are other pastors and commentaries and things that you can read that'll try and give you their reasons for it. And I think they probably have good reason for understanding that. Sometimes the context gives us some of the insight behind the scenes. Sometimes we read in another passage, something that highlights something that happened in the book of Acts. For instance, you wouldn't know that Luke is a doctor just from the gospel of Luke or the book of Acts. It's actually not until Colossians where Paul talks about Luke, the doctor. So we kind of put two and two together. So that does happen in scripture. I'm just telling you with this story, I don't see a lot of motive. I don't see a lot of behind the scenes. And so it leaves us guessing and asking a lot of questions. But there are some things that are very easy for us to observe. And the first is this. From that first few verses that we read, we see that the early church's radical generosity— was fueled by their unity and their love for one another. In other words, the reason that they were to experience and to demonstrate such generosity among one another is because they were unified and they loved each other, like genuinely loved one another. I don't know if any of you have ever been around a church or maybe a school or a nonprofit organization that's trying to do fundraising. Uh, my parents are both teachers, and after my dad retired, he served on uh, some committees with the school district that they had to pass bonds. I'm sure you do that here but in texas we passed bonds to build 50 million dollar football stadiums right because what high school kid doesn't need to play on a perfect stadium and um and so we, we passed these things, and you know, you have to present it to a vote, and the voters have to approve the bond because it increases your property taxes to some extent, and so that's why it has to be voted on. And my dad's always been served on the committees that almost try and help market or sell or advertise why voting yes on a bond is a good thing. And let me tell you, when you are trying to pass an increase to someone's sales taxes in a community as diverse and as populated as like West Houston or Katy, where my parents live, it is very difficult because there is not a lot of unity found. Everybody has an idea for how, if they're going to spend an extra 0.25% or whatever it might be, how they'd like that money spent. And so when you have a divided congregation or a divided group of people, generosity is often difficult to do. I experienced that firsthand with a capital campaign at a church one time. We were trying to raise money to build new space for the student ministry and the children's ministry. And I remember going around to houses in different places and saying, hey, would you help us do this? Will you help us get on board, be extra extra generous so that we can build this thing for the next generation. And I remember facing some pretty stiff opposition from people who are saying, well, what's in it for me? What's in it for people who are my age? What's in it for people who are in the ministries that I'm most involved in? Because there wasn't unity, it made generosity more difficult. And my Experience, and maybe this is just like if you 're doing fundraising or whatever, you know this already is to to find this commonality, this unity, this driving in the same direction we 're all bought in on a vision. It just makes generosity that much easier, and I believe that 's what the early church um, experienced. We see that right here in verse thirty two it said the entire group of those who believed were of one heart. And one mind. And no one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but instead they held everything in common. I want you to remember this because this is about their perspective on their possessions that we'll get to in just a little bit. The second thing I think we take from this happens to be in that story about Joseph, who's called Barnabas. What we see is that Joseph was called Barnabas because of the way he lived his life. In verses 36 and 37, Luke writes that Joseph, who was a Levite from Cyprus by birth, He was the one that the apostles called Barnabas, which is translated son of encouragement or encourager. He sold the field he owned, he brought the money, and he laid it at the apostles' feet, right? That's an example of somebody really living this out. But what I love is this fact that he was called Barnabas. It brings to mind Jesus uh, calling Peter Peter, right? Simon calling him Peter. It brings to mind when Paul has his conversion later in the book of Acts about him going from Saul to Paul. And there's really, this practice throughout Scripture, specifically Jesus calling somebody someone, giving them a name, almost in a prophetic way, saying, I know something that's true about you that you you don't yet know about yourself. It's almost like when he called the early church, when they experienced the, the, uh, the Holy Spirit coming upon them and Jesus giving them instructions, to say, you will be my witnesses. You will be my storytellers. You will go from Jerusalem and out beyond. And they were like, we, we're not storytellers. No, you are in fact storytellers. You will become that. What I love about this is that there's a recognition that Joseph lived his life in such a way that a very natural nickname for him is Barnabas. A very natural nickname is Encourager. And as we see ourselves in this story, I wonder if you've ever been given a nickname that you were like, yeah, that makes me feel pretty good. You know, like somebody like sees you in the hall and like, hey, what's up, stud? And you're like, yeah, they recognize I'm a stud. You know I mean? Like that's, that makes you feel good about yourself. Or Or maybe if someone were to give you a nickname based on the way that you interact with them or based on the way that they've observed you interacting with others, what might that nickname be, right? What might be true about you? What might be so true about you to everybody else that they just, if they were going to give you a nickname, it would just be very simple for them to say, oh, that's... That's an encourager. That's that's somebody that that that's just makes people happy. That's that's the joy bringer or whatever it might be that your name might represent something beautiful about the spirit living inside of you and the way you're living that out. So, just ask yourself the question: What might be the nickname that others gave you uh, if they called you according to the way you treated other people? The third thing is this: The story of Ananias and Sapphira elicits lots of questions. That's a true statement. There are lots of questions when it comes to Ananias and Sapphira. Three big questions, right? Three big questions. One, why did they lie? Why did Ananias and Sapphira lie? Why did they say this is everything that we sold our field for and not say, listen, we sold our field and we'd like to give you half? Like what brought them to the point of of being deceptive about their offering? Uh, The second question is, how did Peter know they were lying? Right? We we know that Peter knew they were lying because when he asks Sapphira, you know, he kind of doubles down on, like, are you sure this is everything you sold it for? And she says, yeah, of course it is. And he's like, well, you're gonna die. Um, you know, like, how did Peter know? We don't, we don't really know that. The third question is, 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 um, like, what exactly is happening with this whole dropping dead thing? Like, what is that all about? Did, did Peter kill them? Did they just, were they so ashamed in the moment that they dropped dead? What's the medical reason for it? Was it an aneurysm or a stroke or a heart attack? Like, what, what, what happened in that moment? So those are three questions. If you want to kind of address those three questions, um, we'll start with the first one. Why did Ananias and Sapphira lie? Again, I don't think the text gives us a lot of insight. I think Luke lists these two or or records these two stories back to back, that of, of Barnabas and Ananias and Sapphira, as a compare and contrast of sorts. Some of the commentaries and research I've done Um, assumes that maybe Ananias and Sapphira saw that Barnabas had done this and maybe Barnabas received some type of special recognition or maybe they thought that he was called an encourager because he sold his land. Those two things don't necessarily go together, but that they did this so that they could receive the same kind of recognition he received. I don't think that's in the text. I'm not saying that's right. I'm not saying that's wrong. I just don't know that that's true. What I do know is true is that almost all of us lie For essentially the same reason. And that is because we want the other person that we're lying to to think something different than the actual truth, right? We're afraid that if they knew what was true, that they wouldn't like us, they would think differently about us, they would interact with us differently, it would hurt their feelings, whatever. We all lie because we think that whatever we want to tell them that they could believe is better for them and for us than, than them actually knowing and believing. The truth. And so I think to some extent the motives of deception have been the motive for deception since the beginning of time. And Ananias and Sapphira, to some extent, wanted them to believe that they were more generous than they in fact were. Now you saw that in Peter's interaction with Ananias. It's like, listen, y- y- when you sold that field, those are your proceeds. Like there's not a rule or a law in place among the early church that says we all have to do this. This is one of some type of communist type deal where it's like forced upon you. Literally their generosity was rooted in their love and their unity and it was kind of the way he describes it is like if somebody has need and somebody else recognizes I have something more than I need I'm going to sell this to provide for the person that I need and you've probably experienced something like this in your own life where somebody has gone without or maybe sold something to give it to you or maybe just said Hey you like that I want to give it to you uh, I was given a guitar one time by a professional baseball player I, I didn't necessarily need the guitar but he needed even less than I did he had like 15 of them on his wall He was like You like that guitar I'm going to give it to you like it was kind of a cool. Experience. Experience. I remember one time I bought a guitar. I, I, I like playing guitar. I'm not any good at it, okay? But I like playing guitar, and I bought a guitar that was much too expensive for my talent level. Okay, let's just put it that way. Like, really, like the guys, Rich and Joseph and those guys, they should play a guitar like the one that I'm playing. I had no business buying this kind of guitar, but I bought this Gibson ES339, beautiful kind of semi hollow body. It looked beautiful, and when I played that G chord, it sounded beautiful, okay? It really did. But I didn't really know what else to do with it. The neck was a little wide. I'd pull it out of tune. It was a bad, it was a bad investment overall. However, A few months after I bought this guitar and I'd started using it and leading worship and doing some different things, there was another situation in which my wife, who had a fairly new vehicle, a nice vehicle, new to us, um, I was driving and I backed her vehicle into a trailer that was parked at the back of my driveway. I don't know why it was there. It was across the street, but I didn't look and I backed it right in. I destroyed her taillight and her bumper and all sorts of other stuff. Now, functionally speaking, her car was fine. Okay, like I could have done the whole taping the red tape over the tail light and it would have worked for a while. But like in my heart, I'm like, it's not right for me to have caused this damage to my wife's vehicle and just leave it like it is when I have this guitar that I have no business owning or playing. And so I sold my guitar to pay for my wife. Now you should feel good about me and think that I'm better, right? But that's just an example to make myself feel better and to demonstrate for you that even with something you really love, when you recognize that there's a need that is greater than your own desire to have something or or, or what you want to do with it, it's just, it's natural for you to be generous in moments like that, right? And, and the truth was that I was able to kind of do an Ananias and Sapphira because I sold that nice guitar, paid for her car, and then bought a little less nice guitar, which is one that's more like my level, okay? In fact, it's in my, my office. You want to come check it out. You can do that afterwards. But that's why they lied, right? They lied because they wanted them to feel something about it. Now, the second question is, uh, how did Peter know? That is a straight up, I don't know. Okay, The Holy Spirit was, was moving in, in powerful ways, and there is certainly a chance, a good chance maybe even, that the Holy Spirit kind of gave Peter this discernment, this knowledge in the moment that, that Ananias was being shady about his offering, that he wasn't in fact giving everything that he had, even though he wanted him to believe that it's also just as likely or possible that like Peter knew the guy that Ananias sold the field to. And he was like, you'll never guess. Ananias sold me that field for a hundred bucks. And Peter's like, really? He only gave me 50. You know what I mean? Like that's a very possible way that this whole thing went down. But Luke doesn't tell us. So before you like lose sleep over how did Peter know, just know like nobody really knows except for Luke and Ananias and maybe the guy who bought the field. So that brings us to the third question, which is really the most significant question. And that is why did they drop dead? How did they drop dead? What was that whole thing about? I I feel somewhat comfortable in answering this as I believe their death was an act of the judgment of God. I truly believe that. Now, that is harsh. And somebody in this room goes, that seems very harsh. I don't know how I feel about a God that just strikes dead somebody that lies about their offering, okay? Um, And I get it. I think that's kind of harsh as well. We don't know the cause of death. We don't know the medical reason for it. All we know is that it was sudden and it immediately followed the exposure of their deception, which means they were caught in the act in the moment and shame overcame them, guilt overcame them and something happened and they died. And of course, both of them died, and they knew what they were doing ahead of time, as the text tells us. But the question is is asked, why such a harsh punishment? If it in fact was a punishment or the exercise of God's judgment, why would God do something so severe for seemingly something that wasn't that serious? And the only answer I've been able to come up with this week is, is actually found in an Old Testament story It's the story of Achan, and if you're familiar with Joshua at all, Joshua followed Moses. He led the Israelites into the conquest of the promised land. You'll probably remember the story if you grew up in church. They fought the battle of Jericho. The walls came tumbling down, that whole thing. So Jericho is the first city in the promised land that the Israelites conquered. And the instructions that God gave them through Joshua was that when they conquered Jericho, they were to destroy everything in the city destroy everything in the city, because it had all been corrupted by the Canaanites and their truly atrocious religious ways and kind of their behaviors and the things that were being carried out. So it was kind of God's way of saying, listen, I'm going to provide for you, but when you take this city burn it to the ground, nothing leaves. And as you read Joshua chapter six, you see that Achan and his family actually saw a few things probably of value and kept them for themselves. And as you keep reading in chapter six and in chapter seven, what you find is, is that God judges all of Israel for Achan's sin. In fact, they lost the next battle and it comes to find out it was exposed that Achan in fact had held some of this stuff back. And God asked and worked through Joshua and the Israelites to judge Achan and he and his family were stoned to death. They faced the death penalty for this sin that they committed. Again, a very seemingly harsh punishment for something that wasn't maybe as serious. But if you compare the situation of Achan and the Israelites in the Old Testament with Ananias and fire in the New Testament, what you find that they have in common is that in both situations, you have uh, the very early stages of a powerful movement of God through an area. The early church, and obviously the Israelites moving into the promised land, finally kind of establishing their kingdom there through the, the, the kings and all the things that we're gonna read after Joshua. And there was a great deal of momentum and unity and purity in that early part of those two movements. And I believe God chose to deal severely with a few in both as a warning to the masses that I am serious about what I'm trying to accomplish and I'm serious about using you to accomplish that. And so there is no room for you to step out of line. There is no room for you to get disobedient in this moment. What I have to accomplish is too serious to let some of this stuff start to bubble to the top. You know, from the very beginning of scripture, we see that God wanted us to use and work through the lives of broken people, sinful people. That's been the case since the beginning. I mean, Noah was a broken person. Abraham, a broken person. All of Abraham's kids, as you kind of see it, and Moses was a broken person. So he has shown a willingness to work through broken people. But when broken people are going to get in the way of what God wants to accomplish, God is going to choose at times to deal severely in moments. I don't think there's anything you can say. is like, listen, this isn't like you and I having a conversation over lunch. I'm like, listen, are you a a tither or are you are not a tither? Like this isn't one of those things where you have to be worried about your answer to that question, okay? You also never have to worry about me asking you that question. That would be very awkward, and I promise never to ask you about that over lunch. So don't say no to lunch because you're worried about that. But you don't have to worry about it. I don't think this is one of those things where it's a copy and paste, that God judged them severely in this moment. And so he wants to judge us severely in that moment. And yet the judgment of God is a real thing that should be a part of everything that we think through. So God uses and works through broken people, uh, imperfect broken people, and that's a part of it. So, uh, and he's, war- he's using a few to warn the many, right? But, and that, that kind of is my best way to try and answer why such a harsh punishment at this particular time. But all of this leads us to the question of, Like what's exactly going on here? Why is this story there? How do we learn from this story? And rather just being a history lesson or better understanding scripture, how can I apply this? Is there anything in this story that actually like makes a a difference in my life tomorrow or even today? And so I I think the answer to that is yes. And I think it starts uh, by asking ourselves a couple of questions. We think about the comparison of uh, Barnabas and and Ananias and Sapphira. One of the questions that we might ask ourselves is what role does generosity play in our lives and in this church. Like, in what ways am I generous? In what ways has this church experienced generosity? How can we grow in generosity with one another? Um, generosity, obviously, is kind of this willingness to, to give or to share, kind of a living open-handed. It's a, an act of unselfish giving. I think generosity is kind of, uh, there's four things about generosity. I think it requires sacrifice. So you choose to do something with something that you could hold back for yourself, but you choose to do with, for somebody else, right? Like every act of generosity, even very wealthy people, who are generous, like they could use that wealth for themselves. So there's an, a sense of unselfishness. It's like I could buy a fifth house, right? Or I could give that away to somebody. Like, so whether you have a little or have a lot, anytime you're generous, you're giving up your right to use that thing for yourself, for the better of others. Um, it's built on the right perspective, right? Which what I'm getting to here is like at that beginning uh, passage that we read or the first couple of verses, it said that they didn't see that any of their possessions were their own. So it, re- it, it requires us to see the things that we have, the resources we have, as, as not our own possessions or anything that we've worked hard for, or anything that we deserve, but rather we're stewards or we're managers like a, like, a, like a money manager might be with your retirement account or something. It's not, it's not his money. He's stewarding it and managing it for you for your benefit. And we have to start seeing our own resources in that way, which brings to mind that generosity is more than money. It's more than about money. In fact, you've probably heard time, talent, treasure. Like if, if, if your money is a part of it, and I think that it is, then so is your time of which we all have the same amount last time I checked. okay, And so are the gifts and the skills and the talents that God has given you. And I think God is asking us to be generous with all of those things. So maybe to ask yourself the question, how am I spending my money? How am I spending my time? How am I using my gifts? And then my favorite thing about generosity is that it's measurable. My last boss had a beautiful way of saying this. He said, um, we all think we're generous. Like nobody wants to admit to being selfish or stingy, right? Like that seemingly is not something we feel comfortable saying. Well, oh yeah, are you a generous person? Of course I'm a generous person. He goes, well, really? Well, generosity is measurable. Like you can actually look at it. Like you can look at your budget. You can look at the income and your, the, all the things that you spend money on. You can say, all right, am I in fact a generous person? You can look at your calendar and go, how much of my time am I using for myself? How much am I using to invest in the lives of others? You can look at your gifts and skills and say, am I using this to build up something for myself? Or am I using this for the kingdom? Am I using this for the better of other people's lives? I think to put you at ease, generosity is not a vow of poverty. This isn't saying that you need to give away everything you have and be broke so that other people can have something. I never see that in scripture anywhere, okay? I also don't think generosity is an overextension to the point of exhaustion. God built a beautiful rhythm in life, including Sabbath, in which... One out of seven days was originally designed and intended to be a day that you could spend in rest and in his presence and in kind of just this idea that you you take a step back and appreciate and enjoy and worship your creator for all that he has given you. So if you're ever extending yourself to the point of being exhausted, I don't know that you're being generous. I think that might actually be pride working its way into your life in a way. It's also not neglecting the most important priorities in your life. So I'll just put it this way. If all of your time is spent helping others, but your spouse or your kids or your best friends feel like they're not getting from you what they deserve, or, or really the sacred responsibility that you have to your family and your friends isn't actually being carried out. Again, I don't know that you're being generous. I think you might've actually misallocated some of the resources in a way that's more reflective of the things that you believe to be true about yourself. So ask yourself this question. Where and why am I tempted to be dishonest with others? When it comes to generosity, when it comes to anything, where and why am I tempted to be dishonest? I think dishonesty is fueled mostly by fear. It kind of bubbles up with pride and shame, right? The pride side of fear says, um, I want people to be impressed by me. I want people to like me. And I'm afraid at the core of who I am, that who I am isn't good enough to impress people, right? If you've ever wondered like, am I good enough for other people to like me? Right then, then you probably felt that temptation to embellish something about yourself. The shame side of it goes, if people really knew the truth about me, if they knew the mistakes that I've made, if they knew the things that I've been through, I'm afraid they wouldn't like me as much. And so we're tempted to kind of hold back and not be transparent and not share those things that we've been through, those things that we've done, because we're worried that they're not going to like me. And that causes us to be dishonest at times. At Grace City, we have two different types of group to kind of work um, opposite of that to kind of work in a different direction you know you think of like being connected and groups and we want you to be engaged and all that kind of stuff like there's a design behind some of the groups that churches run we have uh, community groups we have growth groups so growth groups are three to five people same gender some Bible study, some really great conversation, some accountability, intentional prayer for one another. It's an amazing experience if you've ever been a part of a group like that. Community groups are a little larger, usually 8 to 12 people. Sometimes it's 4 or 5 couples. Sometimes it's a mixed bag of couples and singles or families or whatever. But they're, again, all about spiritual growth. You'll discuss maybe the sermon and how bad it was. Or you'll discuss you know a particular study that you're interested in. A book of the Bible might be. And you're just encouraging each other. You share life together, meals together. Um, and again, you pray for each other, and it's a really beautiful place. But both of those groups have been designed to be places where you can experience acceptance, where you can experience forgiveness, where you can experience safety in a way that allows you to become more honest that allows you to become more generous in a way that you don't have to have any kind of pretense. Because when you've found a group of people that's not impressed by how much money you have or how great your kid is at baseball or what you know number you graduated in your law school class or whatever, then you don't have to lie about any of that kind of stuff. In fact, it's almost like, who cares? Like, I love you anyways. And so you don't. that pride thing doesn't lead you to be dishonest. And when you found a group of people that doesn't look down on you and forgives you and accepts you, and rather than holding you accountable in any kind of guilt or shame-inducing way actually does it in an encouraging way that says, listen, man, I know how hard that is, but I'm going to keep praying for you because you're going to get past this. You're going to overcome this. Then it becomes a lot easier to admit to the things that you struggle with and the things that you've been through in your life. You know, where this all comes to a head for us as a church is that I believe to be the church that God has called Grace City to be, we all need to grow to be more generous and more honest. If we look at Ananias and Sapphira, I I believe this, and maybe it's just a dream because I happen to be the new lead pastor, but I really think that God wants to use this church and the people that come to this church to accomplish some significantly difficult things in this community, like in this particular community and across the city. And we are nowhere close to the biggest church. We don't have a online presence whatsoever. And so there are some difficult things that are going to happen or going to have to take place in the days ahead for us to accomplish what God has set out to do. But I do think it starts with us experiencing that kind of unity and love for one another that fuels generosity and provides a safe place where we can be honest with one another. And as we do that, I think God will use us through things like the great egg hunt coming up or VBS in June or things that we have coming up in the fall where we're gonna partner with some of the local schools and some of the local missions and things that we really wanna to do to make a difference and to bring the hope of Jesus Christ into a broken community. And I think it's gonna take all of us taking a step toward generosity, to taking a step towards being more honest with one another. So if there was a question I would leave you with this week, it would be this what is one step I can take this week to becoming a more honest and generous person? What do I need to do this week? Is it, is it taking a look at my budget or if I don't have a budget, like actually making a budget, right? Like I'm not like some Dave Ramsey fanatic, all right? But like, I think it's impossible to be generous with your money if you don't know like where your money's coming and going. And so it might be helpful for you to look at your budget and go like, what am I taking in? What am I spending my money on? Am I generous? Is there room for me to grow in generosity and pull back elsewhere? You can do the exact same thing with your calendar. And as I mentioned before, this is a beautiful exercise because when it comes to your calendar, you might actually see that your calendar is too full. And you might actually have to pull back in some areas to create some margin in your life so that you can be more generous. I'm not looking for you to go through your calendar and go, I think I can find 30 minutes on Saturdays at 1030 to give my time away to other people. I'm going to do that. Like if that's all you can find, folks, you've got to take stuff off of your calendar, which means you've got to think and pray about, is there something that once I fulfilled my commitment in area that I actually need to pull back? to create some space and some margin, to pray that God might use that margin to make me a better spouse, a better parent, or to be used by him in the lives of other people. Or maybe, maybe you just need to get into a group. Maybe it's time for you to get into a community group or a growth group. You have no idea what that's about. Should download the app, look on the website. There's all sorts of information there. Just find me after church, find Matt, Dr. Weeks, Rich, any of us would love to help you get into one of those groups. And my hope is that your experience would be acceptance and forgiveness and genuine love where you can drop all pretense and all masks and just know that there's a group of people who love you and have your back and want you to just be honest as you grow in who God has called you to be. I think who God is calling us to be is going to be very difficult, like very difficult. I think it's going to be hard. And yet, I can't, I can't deny the fact that I think that even as hard as it's going to be, I think it's going to be worthwhile. I think the same is true for your life. To become who God called you to be might be more difficult than you think, but I can't think of anything more meaningful than to devote yourself to becoming that. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I thank you for the opportunity this morning just to look into a a story, God, that begs a lot of questions. And God, there's a lot of those questions that have probably not been given great answers this morning by myself. And really there's not great answers anywhere else for some of the whys and the reasons behind what we read. And yet I don't know that necessarily understanding the motive or the things behind the scene is necessarily what we need to get from this passage. God, as we read it, as we just see um, the brokenness of people playing itself out in the early church, maybe maybe we just need to be reminded that God wants to use us, that we don't have to be perfect to be used by God that maybe this week we see a, an example like Barnabas and, and we ask ourselves how might we be more generous? Maybe it is a financial thing, God. Maybe, maybe we're holding on to a little bit too much of that for ourselves. But God, for, for so many people in this room, uh, I, I think it's beyond that. I think it's, it's, our, it's our time and the way we spend that time, and the way we devote that time to maybe some of the, the wrong things, not bad things, just wrong things, because you have better in mind and in store for us. God, maybe it's our gifts, it's like our talents. Like we're really good in our studies or in our work and we've never considered that you might wanna use some of these things that you've created us to be good at to be a blessing and benefit to others in a way that might not even come back around to help us. We, we can just be used by you in a way that, that introduces people to kingdom living and, and things that are true about the kingdom of God, that they might have a relationship with you because of the way that they've interacted with us and we've shared our gifts with them. Father, help us become the church that you have called us to be. Help us take a step to becoming more honest with one another and more generous in the way we live our lives. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.